2: I'm Katherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for May 28, 2022. This weekend, Americans are observing Memorial Day, a day to honor service members who died while serving in the United States military. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from November 2016. In the episode, Benjamin Wittes sat down with Bill Banks to talk about Banks' book entitled Soldiers on the Homefront, The Domestic Role of the American Military. The two discussed how both law and culture have shaped and constrained the military's domestic activities. They also review the legal history of the various different roles that soldiers have played at home in the states from law enforcement to martial law. Bill Banks, professor of law at Syracuse University, sat down with Benjamin Wittes at this week's Hoover Book Soiree to talk about his book with Stephen Dykus, Soldiers on the Homefront, The Domestic Role of the American Military. The book examines the legal history of the military's role on the domestic level, studying how law has shaped and constrained, and failed to constrain, military activity within the United States, and how the military can be both a crucial defense and a major threat to the nation's values. As Ben and Bill discuss, it's a conversation that's more relevant than ever, given concerns over the incoming administration's commitment to the rule of law and civil liberties. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode One Hundred and Ninety Seven, Bill Banks on Soldiers on the Home Front: The Domestic Role of the American Military.
0: This is a book that has, in my opinion, a little bit of a deceptive title. That is, you know, when I when I first saw that you'd written a book about so called Soldiers on the Home Front, I thought of you know uh, what was going on on military bases during World War II or sort of a a kind of, and when I when I, you know, the book is actually about something much more immediate and and uh, much more uh, pressing than that, which is the role and the limits of the role of the military across a wide range of roles, in the way that we, uh, in in in. The securing of 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 security and justice and and uh, on the domestic level, and so uh, and it's divided. And I'm going to stop talking at this point. But it's divided into a set of chapters that are based on functions. That's right. Um, Soldiers as X, soldiers as Y. That gives a really remarkable swath of of. Uh, of sense of the controversies that we've had over the role that the military plays. So I'd like you to start, if you can, by just describing the scope and range of the activities that uh, the, the, the military plays that you guys consider in the confines of this book.
3: Yeah, thank you, Ben. And, and thanks to Hoover for, for hosting this. I'm happy to be here. The book is really a, uh, a, a, a civil-military relations book for lawyers. It's definitely law-focused, but it's designed for, as many of you will see, for, for lay readers to be able to understand a broad swath of the impact of the military's involvement in civil society. And what we really describe is a uh, a sort of love-hate relationship in a way, a balance, a tension. We want the military to protect us, but we want them to leave us alone. We want the military to be sure that our laws are enforced and that our civil disturbances are, don't get carried away, and that any terrorist attack or great national natural disaster is met with the, the most effective response possible, but we don't want them to put us in jail. Uh, We don't want them to arrest us or detain us. We don't want them to uh, subject us to a military trial. We certainly don't want them to declare martial law. We don't want them to use their rules of engagement for the battlefield in our cities. And we want them, by and large, to protect us but leave us alone. It's a very difficult balance.
0: So I want to build this conversation up to the quest- questions related to our uh, sort of contemporary reality. But you start a very long time ago uh, with a historical account of where this, um, where this dual expectation uh, of get out of our lives and protect us from all problems comes from. Right. So let's start there. Why, why do we have this sort of bifurcated understanding of the role that the military should play domestically? And to what extent is it different from other democratic cultures?
3: Yeah, we are unique in many ways in this regard. In the The immediate answer is familiar to everyone in this room. It's it's Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence who uh, complained in his very eloquent way about a a military becoming, at the hands of King George, independent of and superior to the civil power. That's a quote from the Declaration. Independent of and superior to the civil power. We can't have, said Jefferson, a nation where the military can take control, except in the most egregious of circumstances. So the declaration complained about those circumstances, the, the redcoats uh, rampaging through our cities, the exercise of general warrants so that citizens could be inspected, searched, and seized with, on the whim of, uh, of a military officer, all kinds of overreaching. So we were determined as a nation to get that right. And arguably, we did get it right in a a series of sort of interlocking measures that we used to create a new government and then a constitution. At the same time, those framers and the revolutionaries, Jefferson among them, fully understood that we had immense security challenges even as a very young nation. From within, dissidents, those who would go in a different direction, those who sided with the British, and also Indians, and foreign adversaries, the French and the English. So they knew they needed a security establishment, but they wanted to control it. They knew that we did not want a military that was superior to civilian government, but they knew that we needed a standing army. We needed a way to protect ourselves and to keep us free. So the Constitution is the emblematic document, of course, and it contains a series of measures that will allow uh, in theory at least, us to have it both ways, to be able to remain secure but yet ensure our liberties. The main ones are familiar to all of you, I'm sure. We have a system of separation of powers so that no one part of our government can exercise too much authority in relation to another. We have a civilian civilian commander in chief. There's a critical chief difference between our experience and the English. And the civilian commander-in-chief is the president of the United States. But in that separation of powers, a good deal of the national security authorities of the government are given not to the commander-in-chief, as you know, but to the Congress of the United States, raise and support armies, provide and maintain a navy, declare war. Those powers were controlled by the Congress, in part simply to prevent a commander-in-chief from exercising too much authority with the military as a surrogate. And then there are a series of provisions in the Constitution that, at the same time, require the United States, for example, in the Militia Clause to protect the states against invasion, insurrection, or domestic violence. In the Republican Guarantee of Government Clause, that, that probably not on your list of top 10 favorite constitutional provisions in Article 4 assuring guaranteeing to the states a Republican form and requiring the United States to respond in the event of even domestic violence upon the request of a governor or a state legislature. So there are a series of measures to make sure that we provide security but not at the expense of having a military that's stronger than the government.
0: So one of the one of the remarkable things about this book, when you go through it, is how little of the relevant law, despite what you just said, is constitutional law. Yeah. and how much of it is boils down to some combination of statutory law and a kind of weird sort of normative expectation where you know the we just kind of expect the military won't do X except under the the very limited range of circumstances that it will right and so my question is what do you understand as the fundamental operative principles and operative law that guides the u the the, the 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 military's involvement in domestic affairs
3: yeah, that's a that's a good question for understanding another perspective on the book that really isn't law driven it's it's culture here it's a culture in the united states that the military wishes not to be involved in domestic affairs so the default position of the united states military if there's an opportunity to be engaged domestically is no we don't want to do that Arguably, that default has changed after 9-11, and we should talk about that. But putting the post-9-11 period to one side for a moment, we've got a tradition, a norm, a part of our civic culture. The military don't want to be involved. We're unique. Again, you asked about how we're different from other nations before. We're unique among the nations in the world is that we entrust all law enforcement to civilians. And as you know, we not only entrust law enforcement to civilians, but we do it at the lowest common denominators of government. Towns, communities, cities, counties, states, maybe, almost never the United States. We don't have a federal police force. We don't need one because federalism and our system of government in the states and cities has allowed us to get by very well by entrusting law enforcement to The locals, but as you know, if you think about many examples over the period, the military have been involved in law enforcement, and they've done so against the grain, cutting against the culture and the traditions on the basis usually of statutory authority. We should talk about a couple of things, but also simply on the say-so or the orders, usually of civilian leadership. Sometimes the president of the United States has authority to make those decisions, sometimes on lesser civilian officials, sometimes on the say-so of military commanders.
0: So you've packed a huge number of uh, provocative ideas into that answer and I want to unpack them. So the first of which is could a president call him Donald Trump, if you like, uh, who wanted fundamentally to disrupt that set of expectations uh, do it? it or, or, or is there something that locks that set of expectations in that the military doesn't do these things? How f- how robust or fragile is it? And what are the mechanisms by which uh, we enforce it?
3: Well, that's the, that's the $64 question. I think the robustness... Well, that's cheap. <laughs> <is regular. laughs> I'm an old guy. My my economic (laughs) model is from the 1950s and 60s. I think it's both fragile and robust. Uh, the, The last chapter of our book, we talk about controlling the controllers. Indeed, I think one of the gravest risks we face domestically in the future is assuring that civilian control over the military is maintained by the rule of law that civilian commanders, particularly the commander-in-chief, doesn't abuse the uh, tremendous authority that he has as president. There's, ca- there's capacity to do so. He has statutory authority to call out the military to do a range of things that would strike all of you as really extreme if you understood the implication. Okay, yes. so
0: wait, let's stop there yeah. and talk about, it. So, so there are a lot of Americans this week who have anxieties about the uh, commitment to democracy of the person who we just elected? So let's ask. Let's ask the question: What authorities does the president of the United States have to call out the military to do things that would surprise people in this room?
3: The euphemism for the statute that's most often uh, at issue is called the Insurrection Act. It's really that dates from 1792. Uh, it was called the Calling Fourth Act in those days. It's had many iterations over time, but the modern uh, version really came from Abraham Lincoln's uh, response to the attack on Fort Sumter in 1861. Congress quickly amended what had been a more modest set of authorities to give the president the, uh, the power to do what he needed to do in the Civil War to hold the nation together. And by and large, those authorities uh, are the authorities that we have today. So essentially, the predicate is that if the president decides that federal law is impracticable to enforce through civilian means, he can call out the military, to enforce the federal laws, And no specification about which laws, how bad things need to be.
0: And to what extent is that practicability judgment simply entrusted to his own discretion and to what extent is there a, a, a check on it uh, by any means from, from Congress, from the courts, from the uh, uh, oaths of office of the, of the commanders of the military themselves. What, what, what checks the president's ability to say you know, federal law is looking impracticable to me. Um, there are all these people who are, you know, out there uh, doing things that I don't like. Yep. I mean, what pre- other than that it's unthinkable, what prevents it?
3: Nothing. They're, they're, um, of course, the Congress could change the law. That's not likely to happen anytime soon. The courts don't intervene in matters like this, and courts are so slow that if there's a crisis going on and the president does a bunch of stuff like this, what good is it? Except for maybe damages awards after the fact, there you know we talk about the campaign and some of the some of the more radical uh, things that candidate Donald Trump said during the campaign about torturing terrorists and their families, waterboarding and worse, uh, rounding up all the Muslims and deporting them. Uh, profiling Muslims in this country for investigation or detention or worse. Um, The things that are plainly unlawful, presumably the military would refuse orders to carry them out. Military officers have to obey the orders of the commander in chief, except when they're clearly unlawful. Then it's their duty not to obey those orders. So those circumstances could arise. Hopefully, President Trump won't do what Candidate Trump talked about but doing. What, but what you're describing
0: is actually something where there's this macro authority, where it isn't unambiguously unlawful because the the actual description of it is entrusted to his discretion. Yes. Um, and when you say nothing prevents it, what I take it that you mean is that nothing prevents it other than the entire political culture. That's right. And so my question is why has that political norm that to, to call out the military to deal with what we think of as civilian law enforcement would unambiguously be an impeachable offense even though it's arguably within it. So what, to what do we attribute? the development and robustness of that norm such that I venture to guess that not a single person in this room, and I certainly count myself among them, knew that the president arguably had this authority prior to this conversation.
3: Well, history suggests that it's been very seldom abused, very seldom, and that military personnel have tremendous respect for civilian authority. Military operators, commanders and their and their soldiers don't do these things on their own. Commanders in chief have not been so abusive. So it's it's a respect for tradition, I think more than anything else that prevents the exercise of a fairly far-reaching uh, authority or di- set of discretion for the president to act on his own.
0: And is your, uh, and, and when you look at the, uh, I mean, I, when you look at the set of things that Trump has said, none of which involve calling out the military to deal with, you know, routine civilian matters, um, do you look at this basic structural environment? As fundamentally robust or as fundamentally fragile, that all it really takes is a, an act of extreme will and you could have a major question? Or do you look at it and say, actually, the presidency is rife with areas like that where the, the only thing that really presents it, prevents something awful, is the entire political culture? And so one shouldn't particularly worry about civil-military relations.
3: I think there are two reasons to worry. I, I, I am I'm worried. I'm not a worrier by nature. Uh, one, one reason to worry is you know, what, what planners call black swans. Unpredictable events of enormous consequence. 9-11 was a black swan. You know, historians suggest that black swans are occurring historically with some greater frequency than they used to. Black Swan could be a devastating terrorist attack. It could be an electronic magnetic pulse. It could be a series of devastating earthquakes rippling across the US. A cyber attack that takes out the infrastructure rolling from the Pacific to the Atlantic. Uh, A a naturally occurring or or terrorist uh, invoked uh, pathogen that killed millions of people. And in that kind of crisis, any of those triggers, the military would surely respond and respond in a major way. We would want them to, but with what set of conditions and controls. The other reason to be concerned is post 9-11 changes. What we've done to our security apparatus in the homeland because of the 9-11 9-11 attacks. I think it's fundamentally different now.
0: Okay, so let's talk about that. We, yeah. you know, the body of the book stops on 9-11 and you, so the, the book is structured as a, as a series of issue area chapters, each of which carries up to 9-11 and then a very lengthy chapter that synthesizes all of the previous chapters in a, in a sort of post 9-11 world and how things have changed. And so walk us through how what the equilibrium was as of 9-11 and to what extent that equilibrium was disrupted and what questions are open today that were not open
3: on 9-10-2001. Right, so in the weeks after 9-11, many of us uh, remember this very vividly, lawyers developed position papers that essentially unleashed the military to act domestically in a whole range of ways if they were so ordered, to provide the president with with legal justification for detention of of anyone on U.S. soil suspected of terrorist activities, for widespread electronic surveillance of anyone suspected of terrorist activities in the United States, and as Ben alluded to early, we both know that there's a statutory uh, framework that strictly controls such surveillance in the United States. The legal work of the authors of these memoranda after 9-11 said that the statutes could be put to one side because of the gravity of the crisis that the nation was uh, uh, enduring after 9-11. there was a military order promulgated by President George W. Bush within two months of 9-11 that allowed for the, the, the trial by military uh, officials of those suspected of terrorist activities, uh, non-citizens, uh, and the list goes on. So there were a, a series of possible new roles for the military to operate domestically that were, at least in theory, legitimated by the gravity of the crisis that occurred on 9-11. These memoranda were written by Justice Department uh, lawyers who had been brought in, uh, two of them anyway, after 9-11. And the the memos themselves were later repudiated by the Justice Department still during the Bush administration in 2005, Uh, and they weren't public at the time. They they were made public by President Obama in his first week in office in 2009. They're really quite a remarkable uh, inventory of uh, virtual carte blanche for the president as commander-in-chief to utilize the military in a whole range of ways domestically.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? Alright, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
0: Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. it's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. DeleteMe sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so let me push back on this a little bit. Yep. Um, I can... You know, everything you say is true, and yet the bark was dramatically more dramatic, sorry, than the bite. Um, the... Military, in fact, first of all, the memos were withdrawn within a v- relatively short period of time. Um, until the Donald Trump campaign, there didn't seem to be any particular appetite to, re, uh, uh, to, to reinvigorate those particular lines of argument. Uh, the number of people who were held in military detention within the, cons- within the territorial United States was three. And all of those cases save one were resolved by the Bush administration and that case was resolved by early in the Obama administration. Um, and the, so the, the specter that you've described um, was Always more theoretical possibility than reality, and even the theoretical possibility faded to uh, to essential uh, academic uh, discussion relatively quickly. So my question is: Is there really more latitude today than on 9/10/2001 for a dramatic change in the domestic role of the U.S. military, or was that a, uh, uh, are you describing a, 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 a road not taken or an anxiety blip that happened 15 years ago and that the system self-corrected for?
3: I think there are two, two important uh, rejoinders. One, one is, this one, the first one is not a rejoinder. It's a comment on the on the professionalism of the military. The military, again, don't wish to be involved in domestic affairs. They train to fight wars abroad and in an in a extreme circumstance, perhaps, to fight uh, on, on U.S. soil, but n- never have. There's a... There's a disinclination to these new initiatives that might be taken in the United States. It's the culture again, it's traditions. But at the same time, I think that the, if you will, the infrastructure that we've created domestically for the capability of the exercise of military means is powerful, it's now permanent. Northern Command, Cyber Command, a whole litany of, of military intelligence activities that have occurred since 9-11. Those resources are here to protect us. And I think most of us would agree that they're doing a pretty darn good job. And it's not the military that would likely be responsible for abusing any of those prerogatives in the future, but it might be a civilian commander in chief.
0: So- all right, so I, I'm, I'm, you've, you've laid out a, a variety of areas of concern, and I'm trying to prioritize them. What's the low-hanging fruit that if you say, if this structure, which has a lot of theoretical areas where you could use the military much more aggressively in the, in the domestic life of the nation than our tradition has allowed. Um, where's where's the danger where are the what are the danger spots that are less amenable to the cultural pushback that you describe of the military's own desires and the expectations of the civilian population which would function as a kind of thin edge of the wedge where all of a sudden you know for reasons that seem perfectly sensible to lots of people at the time we end up with a much greater role of, of the military in our domestic life.
3: One, one possibility would be the, a black swan, a really, really drastic, unexpected uh, crisis by one of those means that I described before. And, and then the, anything could occur. One other way that uh, an intervention or some improper a military role could occur is in the area of intelligence, I think. I think it's fair to say that that President-elect Trump likes the capabilities of our national security community to collect intelligence to find out what's really going on. Uh, There are lots of authorizations for that that enable NSA and others to conduct intrusive electronic surveillance. But there are limits, important limits based some on statute and many on the Constitution, the Fourth Amendment primarily. President Trump could push that envelope, it seems to me, and he could use military capabilities in the United States to do so. There was a period during the Vietnam War, Vietnam era, where the Department of Defense maintained a dossier on 100,000 Americans, secretly. 100,000 who were engaged in political protests and civil disobedience about the war, in most cases some in, in support of civil rights initiatives. And they brought a lawsuit once they learned about the likely, their likely uh, uh, victimization as part of a surveillance program, and the lawsuit was eventually dismissed by the Supreme Court in a case called Laird versus Tatum. But bring that forward 40 years or 45 years, and you can imagine something far more sophisticated Uh, going on now at the hands of the military either with or without the uh, knowledge of the American people.
0: On the other hand, that Vietnam War era set of programs predates the FISA and it's hard to imagine how you could, I mean FISA is, for those of you who've never spent time with it, an amazingly elaborate statutory regime with um, a lot of different oversight mechanisms that function at very different levels of granularity. And I guess my question is, why is that structure not um, reassuring, or to what extent is it reassuring, that a president couldn't easily revive the sort of uh, mass surveillance using military authorities that we once saw.
3: There's a, it, it, the baseline of FISA is far different in, in 2016 than it was on, on 910 or 911. You know, the Bush administration simply decided to ignore the requirements of FISA in asking NSA, part of the Department of Defense, to implement uh, a big a surveillance program in the weeks after 9-11, and it went on for more than four years before it was reported by the New York Times in December of 2005, and then went on longer before Congress authorized it temporarily in 2007, and then codified it in 2008. Now, as codified, that program is indeed far more uh, liberal in terms of what it allows NSA to do, but it still protects citizens. It allows extensive surveillance of those who are not United States persons who are believed to possess foreign intelligence information. It doesn't take too great an imagination that that the President could say, I think we need to extend that to those who might be US persons, and to have surveillance conducted on that basis, either from the, the the servers, the ISPs themselves, or as we do upstream now, collecting off the, off the uh, major trunk lines in the internet without regard to sifting citizenship or U.S. person status. Just get it all and let's check it all and see who the bad people are.
0: When, when all is said and done, how alarmed are you when you look at this fabric and say, there is uh, a lot, there's a, a fair bit of room for a civilian leadership that wanted to use the military more aggressively to mm-hmm. do so. But there's a very strong military cultural norm and, and civilian cultural norm militating against it, uh, including all of our social expectations. Um, how does it balance out in your mind? Um, in terms of the likelihood that we have a serious problem or the likelihood that our, our current equilibrium is stable?
3: I'm, I'm wary, uh, I'm not alarmed, and, and you know, one of the groups that gives me the greatest uh, comfort are the uh, military lawyers. I think the the lawyers in uniform who performed so brilliantly, by and large, after 9-11 in in speaking truth to power during the Bush administration, they were so effective and responsible in many ways for rolling back some of the abuses that occurred in the first couple of years of the Bush administration, those people um, have grown in stature, I think, and have had greater influence in the policy arena in the 15 years since 9-11. And I think they know about the culture, the tradition, and the laws that keep the military in their lane. That is, keep them out of civilian, out of domestic affairs except under extreme circumstances. I think, again, that the wariness comes from a concern about controlling the controllers, not from the abuses that the military might undertake themselves. And in that vein, I think controlling the controllers, we lawyers anyway, think that the best way to do that is to plan. So I I worry about the various forms of domestic crises that we may be imagining now and how the military, in tandem with Department of Homeland Security and lots of other parts of government and the private sector, can effectively prepare for what's coming next. Cyber, which we haven't talked about as such, is an enormous game changer. We, we address cyber uh, to a small degree in this book, but it, it, as you all know, it's a tremendous uh, challenge in the security environment. The military has a, a, an important role to play, but the cyber dimensions of response and ante- anticipation of a crisis have not been well thought out between the military uh, organization and civilian responders. Partly because of different chains of command and organiza- organizational separateness. So one, one last sort of big question,
0: which is, is this inherent to the nature of the presidency and inherent to the nature of the military and the relationship between the two? Or is this a democratic choice that we've made not to have you know, not to have more stringent statutory controls in order to leave things flexible for a crisis. As in, mm-hmm. could, could you imagine a, a set of statutory regimes that uh, preserve the flexibility to use the military in crisis situations that we need it, but don't give rise to the same anxieties that you clearly have about, about you know what a president could do with the military if he had adequate will and adequate, uh, uh, you know, crisis support. Um, is the regime all it should be, or could it be better?
3: I think it could be a lot better, but I don't think it will become a lot better.
0: All right. Well, let's 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 take take those. Two observations distinct from one another,
3: yeah
0: if you could do two or three big things to the regime to make it better, snap your fingers, and Congress would magically get where where it needs to be on this what are the what are the rules that aren 't there in terms of the domestic role of the military that should be there, just as a, an abstract matter of the good
3: yeah, I think that All of us in the room would appreciate greater accountability mechanisms. You want the president to be personally accountable, not as a person, but as an office to important decisions that are made to protect the the American people. So the Insurrection Act requires that he issue a proclamation and cease and desist. You can imagine, you know, an old bullhorn, and these days it would be done differently, but it's, it's, uh, it's vacuous, the proclamation that he has to make. It has no content whatsoever. So I can imagine a series of, of determinations that he would be required to make, like a covert action find in the intelligence area, <laughs> that you're going to achieve the following objectives for these reasons, under these circumstances, and that would, I think, improve the mechanism a lot. After Hurricane Katrina, when the debacle of late uh, federal response uh, uh, brought everyone uh, up short, including President Bush. He supported a, an initiative to respond to amend the Insurrection Act in the months after Hurricane Katrina to make it easier for him. Uh, he, he blamed, in part, he blamed the, the mechanism itself for the slowness in getting the federal response uh, done. There was
0: what, there was there any merit to that?
3: No. It was really posturing. And you know, I, I think the truth is there was difficulty between the governor Blanco of Louisiana and the Bush administration. The administration was late. Secretary Chertoff and uh, and Brownie at the at FEMA were indeed uh, slow to get get things positioned properly for deployment down there. Uh, but what he did was to pro- he didn't propose it. Others who were working in this area came up with an amendment to the Insurrection Act that was much more contemporary. And in, I think many of us in the room would say it's, it's a big improvement. In the next six months, it was enacted. And in the next six months, the National Governors Association came out opposed to it after the midterm elections in 2006. It was repealed more quickly than perhaps any other statute in the history of the United States. It didn't last and we're back to where we were in the Civil War with the open-ended grant that none of us likes very much, but is probably what we're going to live with.
0: And and so, given the set of concerns that you've articulated, and there's a right-wing version of those set of concerns and a left-wing version of the set of concerns, and right, I mean, so, you know, when it's, when it's Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton you know, there's a lot of people on the right who are afraid that, you know, they're going to call out the military to take people's guns away, right? And, you know, you can, you know, and, and so these are not a narrow set of anxieties, right? I mean, there's a lot of, a strange number of people in the United States know the phrase Posse Comitatus Act. <laughs> and, um, and so my question is, why are the politics of it such that despite the, the breadth of the concerns uh, and the relatively politically widespread sharing of those concerns, why do you think there is no prospect of uh, some kind of a covert action law like, or some more, mm-hmm. uh, more accountable structure in which in which these things might take
3: place? I think the politics are too hard at the top between Congress and the president and the federalism dynamics between the governors and state legislatures and the, and the national government. I think where we might see the, the improvements play out is below the line of legislation. In planning documents and proposals, regulations, protocols, exercising and training, that involves DOD and other domestic response entities like DHS. There have been a series of exercises, many of you know about them, to prepare for and anticipate domestic crises of one sort or another. By and large, in the decade between 9-11 and recently, they were miserable failures. Any time DHS tried a big exercise, the series that's best known is called Top Off for top officials, they were embarrassing just notionally, things went very badly. I attended one of them or two of them up here in Nebraska Avenue as a so-called VIP. And on uh, one of them, there was, a, I think, a bio-attack near the George Washington Bridge on 95 in New Jersey. And the first thing the governor in New Jersey did was to close I-95. Well, and then everybody stood around and said, hmm, how are we going to get our resources to the site of the incident? and The the military had been involved, but they weren't talking to the civilians. As you know, they're separate chains of command, and the the tradition of the military chain is not to give it up. Not to allow soldiers to be told what to do by a civilian. (laughs) That's older than the United States military, that tradition. And without unified command and a response operation, uh, sort of keystone cop images of People bungling into each other operationally are pretty vivid. So, but I think a lot of good people are working very hard at these kind of response plans, uh, continuity of government plans. There are things called CONOPS. There is a ser- series of cyber response uh, programs that are ongoing. But in the most recent ones that we write about in the book, uh, the the. Results have not been very good. The uh, the governors haven't been aware of the federal response in their area. Uh, so the, the cooperation and coordination across civilian and domestic affairs uh, entities inside the government has not been so good. I think that's where the improvement can continue to come. And again, there are lots of efforts being made in that direction. I don't expect either legislation or uh, constitutional reform to make the picture any clearer. Do you
0: expect, and we'll close on this question, do you expect the personality of Donald Trump uh, to affect the conversation in a meaningful way or is uh, presidential eccentricity just one of the constants with which this relationship always <coughs> intends?
3: He's been analogized, this was during the campaign, to Andrew Jackson. And Jackson uh engaged in some remarkable excesses as commander in chief. And uh, I, I think that was then and this is now. And I, I I think that the institutional strength of the United States is such now uh, that there would be lots of pushback on any instincts that a President Trump might have to behave as arbitrarily as Andrew Jackson did on several occasions back then. I. Th- I have great confidence in those who will serve in the government, those who are serving now and will continue to serve for the next four years to prevent that from occurring.
0: Bill Banks, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks, Ben. Enjoyed it.
2: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to the Hoover Institution for hosting the event and providing audio. And as we near our 200th episode, please spread the word and promote the Lawfare Podcast via your social networks on Twitter, Facebook, and email. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening.